Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn with me to Isaiah 53 with that phrase, Jesus paid it all in our minds. Uh, Isaiah 53 is certainly a chapter that speaks to that foundational theme of our faith. Actually, turn to the last three verses of Isaiah 52. I hope that isn't too far from Isaiah 53, because the servant song that we're looking at begins at the very end of chapter 52, at 52 verse 13. So we're going to start our reading there and go through the entire chapter of 53. And as you think about these words, maybe put yourself back to what an Israelite would have thought in Isaiah's day, where we, he knew that there were these promises of forgiveness, but he sensed also and knew that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs weren't enough, that the holiness of God was a, a dramatic biblical truth, but also the mercy and forgiveness, and how would those meet? And it took hundreds of years until Jesus came and died that we would have the full revelation of how the holiness and the mercy of God meet. Hear the word of God beginning in Isaiah 52 at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, please open our eyes anew to the beauty and the glory of this suffering servant, Jesus, our Lord, our King, our God. We pray in his name. Amen. We've been looking at this Lenten series at the Old Testament texts, as some, of the, some of the Old Testament texts that foreshadow the Messiah's coming and point us toward the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And this evening here in Isaiah 53, we find the fourth of the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, as they're commonly called. These series of poetic pictures of this prophesied servant who would come and and whom we learn is the long-awaited Messiah. And this fourth song is the most elaborate and the most poignant of the songs in that it is it so clearly and so powerfully sets forth Christ's amazing work of redemption through his death and resurrection, which, looking ahead as it does, predicts that the Messiah will accomplish. And really shockingly, to I'm sure an Israelite who would have read this or heard this in Isaiah's day, Somehow, this work will be accomplished by this terrible and massive suffering that we hear described here. Remember, the prophet Isaiah wrote about 700 years before Jesus came, and we can't help but, as we read these words, be struck with the amazing accuracy of this picture and really the marvel of God's inspired holy revelation through the Old Testament and through the prophet Isaiah in this case. This, as you noticed as we read it uh, in your translation, you might have noticed that this servant song has five stanzas, and each stanza has three verses in it. And so we're going to briefly look at each of them and then draw two applications at the end. The first stanza is the final three verses of chapter 52, and I would entitle this, The Servant's Work Summarized. In verse 13, the very opening verse of this song, the opening stanza, we would say, begins at the end. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. You might remember that high and lifted up phrase is used in Isaiah chapter 6 when the prophet has this vision of God on his throne and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. It's not until now that he uses that phrase again. And that phrase is... The servant's exaltation, which we will finally see in stanza number five. And then 
in summarizing his work, he begins at the end and Christ's exaltation, and then he goes back to verse 14, in a sense, to this deep suffering. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That is a summary of Christ on the cross. And then verse 15 is the stunning reaction to this victorious accomplishment of the, of the Messiah. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That's just a picture of the gospel going out using Old Testament language of the sprinkling with blood or with water that always symbolized cleansing and forgiveness of sins. This victorious one who is exalted will sprinkle many nations. And then we say, we hear him say, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Pagan kings are in view here. For that which has not been told them, in other words, they hadn't received the gospel, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. That's a picture. Verse 15 is a picture of the gospel going out to the nations of the world, bringing forgiveness and new life to people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the summary. So we're given that overview, that bird's eye view, and now at the, as chapter 53 begins, we're going to start at the beginning again and go through this piece by piece. So secondly, the servant despised and rejected, verses 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We might start by asking, who are referred to with the use of the word us? And later, we, and we're going to see in stanza two, our griefs and our sorrows. Apparently, these are witnesses to this suffering servant and his suffering who uh, those who once did not understand but now have been given eyes to see. And in verse 1, it's implied that they are the ones who now are declaring what they understand and what they see, and possibly they're the ones who are declaring to the kings of the verses before that so that they come to the gospel. And who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is symbolic for the salvation of the Lord. And then we get the initial impression of all of those who knew this servant. And it's told to us in verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. So this image of the desert and the wilderness, dry ground, and there's a little green shoot coming up. That's what it was like in a spiritually dry and thirsty land. And it tells us he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What is the initial response? Ah, uh, he had no beauty, nothing really to look twice at. He was thought little of. And it's speaking in terms of outward appearance or worldly natural judgment. The Messiah, in other words, would be unimpressive in terms of what the world typically looks for in greatness, something to wow them, something dazzling. 
No, this servant would be a man raised in obscurity. No one would really know him at all for 30 years. And he would be brought up in a nation that had been occupied and oppressed by Rome. I was reading the description of the emperor Constantine entering the Council of Nicaea as that famous Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325 began. Eusebius of Caesarea gives us a picture of this. And here the emperor comes in. He says, Then everyone stood up at the sign as the sign was given that the emperor was about to enter. And at last he made him he made himself he himself made his way through the midst of the assembly. Hundreds of presbyters and deacons gathered for this council from we get from which we get the Nicene Creed. He made his way through the midst of them, looking like some heavenly angel of God, covered in a garment which glittered as if it were radiant with light, reflecting the glow of his purple robe, adorned with the brilliant splendor of gold and precious stones. Now, there's an appearance that the world would make note of, isn't it? No, He was raised in obscurity. Verse 2 says, He has no beauty that we should desire him. Again, meaning in a natural, worldly way. But as the song unfolds, we will see that this Messiah, this suffering servant, because of who he really is, because of his character, because of his teaching, because of his love and compassion, because of his kindness in healing the sick and raising the dead and then setting his face like a flint to go to the cross and dying, that this beautiful Savior was the one who loved us unto death, that he was the one who was crushed that we might live, that he, w- he becomes the desire of the nations, the bright and morning star, the lover of our souls. There is nothing more beautiful in this world than Jesus Christ and his love for us and his showing forth the glory and the character of God. But what was the reception he received? Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Why was he a man of sorrows? Why was he acquainted with grief? Because he so fully identified with us in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, in our lostness. In himself, the Lord Jesus Christ was all joy and glory and perfect fellowship and knowledge of the Father unmarred by sin. His grief and his sorrow were only because he determined to love you and me. As one from men hide their faces, I'm reminded of when we were watching on our televisions and on 9-11 when that second plane smashed into the second tower and all of us just turned our faces we couldn't watch. Think of the thousands and tens of thousands on the streets of Manhattan doing the same thing. This was worse. The Son of God on the cross to see Him there you would want to hide your face. Isn't it a supreme irony 
that the long-awaited Messiah would finally come to his people, his chosen people in history, and he would be rejected. He would be despised. It's fitting to ask for all of us, what about you and what about me? Have you despised and rejected the Savior? To despise him is not necessarily to have really an act of animosity to him that you're aware of. Despise can simply mean to think little of. That's the dictionary definition of one sense of it, to not really care about something, to have no real interest in it. You know, who won the hockey championship this year? I don't know. You know, I don't have much interest in it. Uh, somebody won it, I guess. Uh, that's, that can mean despise. To feel that you don't want to be bothered, that kind of, of apathy when it comes to Jesus Christ is just as much rejecting him and rebelling against him, your rightful Lord, as if you were a Roman soldier hammering the nail into his hand to despise and reject the Savior. That was the natural response. But we go to stanza number three, the servant bearing our sins, verses four through six. And here is really the heart of the song. Here, these witnesses, the we, the us, realize that the sorrows and the griefs that the servant experienced were because of them. They were the penalty for their sins, And verse 4 begins with this emphatic word, surely. It's for emphasis. Listen, look at this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We didn't understand. But, verse 5, now we see he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Do you hear how the phrase upon phrase upon phrase brings home this awful reality of what the Savior suffered? Pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds, smitten, stricken, afflicted. No wonder it's the heart of the song. This despised suffering servant with absolutely no support or understanding from the very people he was saving then or now bore the bitter bitter penalty of their sin, the ultimate suffering to bring us peace with God, to bring us everlasting healing. It is an exchange beyond all comprehension. I don't know if A Tale of Two Cities, that Dickens novel, is still required reading in high school. It was when I was in school. But at the end of that book, Sidney Carton, a man who has wasted his life, secretly takes the place of the story's hero, Charles Darnier. The authorities don't know this. And as Carton rides in the cart to his execution at the guillotine, his thoughts are recorded by Dickens as his final speech. Of course, this is all fiction, but it's, it's a story. And the most famous line as he's taken to his death is that line, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. 
It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. And there are other things about his thinking there. But Carton is saying that his act of sacrifice in saving the hero's life has redeemed his wasted life. But do you see how different that is from what our text is telling us about the death of Jesus Christ? Jesus didn't die to redeem himself. He didn't have to die for his own sins. He didn't have any sins. He died to redeem us. And verse 6 captures it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And a good Israelite would think of all the, the ceremonies, all the sacrifices that involved our sins, the sins of the people of Israel being put on the scapegoat or on the lamb being slain or on the bull. That's the principle, substitutionary atonement, the amazing grace of substitutionary atonement, Christ taking our place, bearing our sins, and we are called to receive it through simple faith in Him, trusting in Him. Well, that brings us to the fourth stanza, verses 7 through 9. The servant dies willingly and unjustly. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Notice that repetition. He opened not his mouth. He willingly goes to his death like a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus does not resist. Peter picks this up as he speaks about this as well. He is accomplishing his Father's will. Don't we all have a deep sense of justice in our hearts? Well, we talk about justice a lot these days in our society, and there's a lot of embitterment about what is just and who gets justice and things like that. Most of us long for justice, but we especially want justice for me. And we're most aware when we're not getting justice. We're less aware when others, but hopefully we're thinking about those things. Well, here is is the supreme injustice in the whole history of the known world up until now and ever will be, and that is the death of Christ. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Think of it. The one who created the universe, the one who holds massive galaxies in the palm of his hand, so to speak, Jesus Christ, the creator and sustainer of all things by the word of his power, the Son of God, condescended to willingly subject himself to this lowly and awful death on a cross and the bearing of the hell that we deserved, all out of his delight in doing the Father's will for the glory of God and his love for his people. That's what the Savior did. That's what's being described here. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. That signified he died as a criminal. What amazing grace. And yet there was no deceit in his mouth. And that leads us to the final stanza 
of our psalm in verses 10 and following. The servant exalted and bringing a multitude to God. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God the Father, has put him, the servant, to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Notice the that verse is framed by that phrase, the will of the Lord. It could be translated the pleasure of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 11, God says he doesn't take pleasure in the sacrifice of bulls and lambs and goats because the people thought that's all they needed to do. They didn't have to give God their hearts. And God said that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't give me pleasure. It's that will in that same sense. It was the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. But then the end of the verse, the will of the Lord, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What does all this mean? It's telling us, as we read earlier in Acts 2 and Acts 4, that it was the divine plan of God to crush the Son of God. The Father and the Son both delighted to do this out of love for a lost people. It was all part of God's glorious plan of redemption. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's the cross. And the phrase, he shall see his offspring, is referring to people from every tribe and tongue and nation, the offspring who are the offspring of Abraham. It's this multitude, billions of people from every nation, and he shall prolong, he shall prolong his days, envisions the resurrection of Christ. So a lot of things are being described in this verse. And then verse 11 continues the theme, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What kind of satisfaction is this? It's satisfaction in accomplishing this great work of redemption and the tremendous impact that's going to have on the world in calling out a people to himself. Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. And what was the joy? It was a joy of a people that God the Father was bringing to him through his work. It's described by his knowledge, middle of verse 11, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. There it is again. Many shall be made righteous through the substitutionary work of Christ. And then verse 12 concludes with this theme of exaltation that we saw there at the very beginning. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's using imagery of the conqueror. The conqueror, the warrior, who returns from his mission laden with the spoils of war. And he divides the spoil with the strong, with his allies who share in his glory. We, his people, he ascends on high and he gives gifts to his people, we find in the book of Ephesians. And then we are given this final summary statement at the end of verse 12. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgression. It summarizes it all that way, speaking now about the intercessory work of Christ. What can we say? Two words of application. 
have you ever had your eyes opened to the glory of Christ's death as our substitute? You know, I was raised in the church, went through the communicants class, but not till I was a sophomore in college did I understand that Christ died as a substitute for sinners like me. It's when I came to Christ. And I ask you to look at your heart and ask yourself, has, have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, saying to him, yes, I deserve nothing but the judgment of God. Even my so-called good works are chalked through, shot through with sinfulness and pride. I need the righteousness of Jesus Christ in my place. I need his substitutionary death for me. And then secondly, for all of us, am I living near the cross daily with my eyes on Jesus Christ, rejoicing in what he has done and what he continues to do as my living Savior? Am I daily repenting of my remaining sin? Am I seeking more and more to live for Jesus Christ, to more and more die to sinful self, and knowing that the power comes from looking to him? my Savior, my substitute, my God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the Lamb of God, for the suffering servant, for the Messiah who came and is going to come again in glory. Our Lord, we look to you. We pray that you would work in our hearts. May your word sink deeply into us and change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.